welcome to the Big 60s Sortout, brought to you by the Big Beatles Sortout. We've spent three series sorting the Beatles, and now we're turning our attention to the competition, the context, the bigger picture. Who were they up against? What music influenced them? And will we hear the shockwaves of the Beatles' epic success as we sort all the UK number ones from the 1960s by ranking them for music, lyrics and production? Thanks for joining us as we try and sort out the 60s. Welcome to Series 4, Episode 9. I'm Gary Abbott, author, musician and podcaster, and please welcome my popular music history expert brother, Paul. Hello everyone, and hello Gary. Are you alright? You sound a little um, bunged I'm a, up. I'm a little on the bunged up side, yes. I'm a little coldy, and as if to prove I do record those intros every week, you'll be able to tell from that. But you sound like a classic advert for... It's like a cold remedy, a proper... Yes. Hello there, I am doing an advert for colds. And I've had a classic cold remedy, and I still sound like this, so that just goes to show, doesn't it? Oh, well, people have just have to put up with your sickly um, utterings. Yeah, it, yeah. unfortunately, I'm going to be a bit like this. I'll try to keep my sniffling I'm, to well, a Well, I'm a bit concerned, because literally we're in each other's company yesterday and the day before and yeah. i haven't got a cold yet yeah and you have got a cold so yeah oh dear oh dear hope everyone out there in um, podcast land is feeling fit and fine and well though yes let's let's hope you all are and oh, now i shall endeavor to do my best oh, we, we would normally wait till a better time but we're getting quite on our own heels at the moment with recording so uh so, so you'll just yeah. have to put up with this or not the march episode. of 60s Pop information must continue. Yes, never stops. Uh, and on that note, please do keep in touch with us on Twitter and Instagram at big underscore sort or email us at bigbeetlesortout at gmail.com and please like, subscribe, review our show and all that kind of stuff and consider dropping by our Bandcamp links which are on the episode description. Uh, and in our link tree. I did a link tree. Oh, and our link tree, yes. So anywhere, Twitter, anywhere Reddit, we're on Instagram, anything, Reddit. yeah. Yeah, so is that got... It's a link tree. What's that got in it? Uh, links. Big cats, or... Yeah, just our links. One links. Well, there you go. So, that's that then. <laughs> um, so, we're on to the, um, the last of 1961, aren't we now, Paul? Yeah, we're the last chalk off another of year. Another year, only two years down. It feels like the, you know, there's lots to go still. <laughs> well, there is lots yes, to there go, is. And- but but um, yeah, that's great. So we're we're in the the winter of um, of sixty one, the beginning early winter. So what were the Beatles doing at this time? Okay, so we last left them in exactly the middle of October, really the fifteenth of October. And so we're going to carry on from there. And basically, what I've got here is I've got a list of the dates through to the end of the year because it's very interesting it's mainly just what all they're doing at this point is show 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 many of them in the cavern quite a few in places like the casbah the usual places like the the sort of village halls in Notty ash the litherland town hall and things like that but between all these dates of which it's like dum 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 you know the whole calendar mm-hmm. to the end of the year there's a few significant things happen so Let's see what they get up to between mid-October 61 and the end of the year. Um, well, let's see. 19th of October 1961, they're playing in Litherland Town Hall on the same bill as Carl Terry and the Cruisers and Jerry and the Pacemakers. And it's the night that they form the Beatmakers on stage. 
which is where basically the pacemakers and the Beatles just bored, just sort of smash the two groups together and just mess around. Huh. And Carl first. Terry from the other band does it as well, so joins in. So it's just chaos. They create a, a, a proto super super group. group yeah. Mm. Um, so we have like, like there's points where Paul and John are both playing the piano. Um, you know, they've got two drummers. They've got the John's grabbing hold of Les Maguire's saxophone. Uh, you know, it's just nuts stuff. And I think it's a symptom of them, as we've been talking about, of the circuit being a bit boring. And one night they're sort of like, well, do you know what? Let's just do something different. Let's mess around. Yeah. Which the promoter was probably not happy about, but it, you know, it only happened once and they did it. And it just, there you go. So that's 19th of October, 1961. We jump forward. They have a bit more playing and we get to the 24th of October, 1961. That's the week that they receive the uh, their first copies of their record. And I say their record. Tony Sheridan and the Beatles. Yes, uh, yeah. You know, and the Beatles. My body. Uh, the Beat Brothers. And, yeah, so it's quite hard to judge what they really thought about it because reports go from them being a bit embarrassed about it to them being excited about it. I think there would have been a massive amount of excitement about the having an object, a proper record, not one they've gone to pay to get one copy of in a, yeah, you know, cut sort of live in a house it's an actual record with a producer that they've made that's out and released um and there is a story that you know there's the letter that george sends to Stu, who's still in germany to say here's a fiver can you send us more copies as well right so the beatles have got a record of sorts then we jump forward to the 28th of october it's the day where they're playing in the aintree institute but apparently this is the day that a boy called Raymond Jones visits the NEMS record store and Brian's behind the counter, Brian Epstein, right. and Raymond Jones asks for a copy of My Bonnie. Okay. Um, Brian's motto was basically, I'll get anything. Anything anyone asks for, uh, one of our things that makes us a good record store is we'll find out where, where it is, how to get hold of it, and we'll get it. Mm. Any record. And he's never heard of this band. Because Raymond Jones is asking for the My Body by the Beatles. Yeah. And so this is one of these significant days. Yeah. This is one of those things that was always like, here's the story. A lad went in and asked for this. And Brian didn't realise that just down the street was a, the cavern where the Beatles were playing every lunchtime. Um, and you've seen that distance. It's, it's nothing, really. No. And... Then years later, Alistair Taylor, who was sort of Brian's right-hand man at the time and comes into the Beatles sort of organisation, claimed that this guy Raymond Jones didn't exist. Right. And that he was Raymond Jones and he'd put the order in in the book to get my Bonnie bought into the shop. And yet, okay. later, Raymond Jones is actually found and interviewed and talks about this. So, you know, it's, it's just mad that Alistair Taylor would come up with this story. Right. Um, he talks about it in this an arena documentary, the Brian Epstein so story, is, where... Is Alistair he, Taylor claims that he was Ray, Raymond Jones and like made up an order with his fake name. So why did he... What, because he already knew the Beatles and wanted to oh, get I them... I don't know. I think he. I think the implication is people were coming in and asking for the record, but no one had put down a deposit or given any information. Right. So he just took the... His... I think his story is I took, just took the initiative that we'd get some copies in because right. no one had formally ordered it. So I made up a name, a formal order name. 
Right. Okay. Except he didn't. Raymond yeah. Jones exists. And so person did that, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Very important day because suddenly the Beatles' name is really there in Brian's brain. He's he's probably seen it around in all sorts of contexts yeah. because of his business and being in Liverpool and all that sort of stuff. But now it's there, it's stuck in his brain properly. Right. So we skip forward a few more shows, but on the 9th of November, 1961... Brian and Alistair Taylor go to visit the cavern at lunchtime, and that's the famous meeting, the famous what brings Mr. Epstein here quip from George. Yeah. You know, they're going there because it's like, well, we'll find out more about this group that people are asking about the record for. Yeah. And that's that's Brian's, you know, the lightning bolt from the sky. That's his moment of like, what Yeah. was that I just saw? And yeah, so... A, a ludicrously significant day in the Norway, in an otherwise really sort of just standard week in the life of the Beatles. Gig, 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 cavern, cavern, cavern. Except that this time Brian Epstein's there. Right. And he meets them. It, nuts. Enter Brian Epstein. Exactly. Then, if we keep skipping through, we have things like they're playing in the new Brighton Tower Ballroom. They're playing like 3,000 sort of capacity shows. Yeah. Which is amazing. So they're doing all these big shows and as well as all the things like the regular cavern slots and the Merseyside Civil Service Club and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. You have them in the, the Tower Ballroom again for Operation Big Beat 2 where Emile Ford appears, our first number one that we talked about, yeah. Emile Ford. Da, 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 da. 29th of November, they have their first meeting with Brian where he says, I'd like to manage you. And they only have to get from the cavern to his office in Nems, which is literally a, a five-minute walk if you're dawdling. But there's quite a few pubs on the way. Right. So they arrive late. Okay. Anyway, they go in the grapes, which is still there. You can still go to the grapes. They have redecorated it, and it's not as nice as it used to be, but uh, it's still in the same place. Right. Um, And one of the things Brian says to them is, I don't sign anything now. I'm going to go to London and take your record and play it to people that I know in the record business. Yeah. You know, because he's a hugely important northern sale, record salesperson. So he goes down to London the weekend of the 2nd of December and he goes around, he meets EMI and Decker and um, asks to see their doors. <laughs> Ruttles reference. Um, basically doesn't doesn't get any interest. A little nibble from Decker. Um, <clears throat> but on the 3rd of December, he meets with the Beatles again. Paul is late this time because he's having a bath. <laughs> so that's that's the the another George famous George quip of Brian saying this is terrible. He would be very late, and George saying yes, but very clean. Right. Then again, they don't sign anything, but they do all go to the pub together, and that's the day that John supposedly says, "Right then, Brian, managers." Okay. So there you go. You want a nice significant date for the the Beatles at the end of nineteen sixty one? Yeah. That's the day. So they're Eighth all of December. Set for, sorry, Gary. They're all set for sixty-three. Really, they are. They've got to get sixty-two out of the way yet. Gary. Oh, sorry. Yeah, see, <laughs> this is how it's going to go today. They're all set for sixty-two. Yes, um, but yeah, let's close out the eighth uh, of December, nineteen sixty-one. They're playing at the New Brighton Tower Ballroom again. Uh, Danny Williams is there. Remember that name, okay? Um, because we'll be talking about him. Mm. But on the 9th of December, they play their first proper gigs in the south of England. They, they get taken down to Aldershot and play to basically 18 people that they have to round up themselves from the pubs nearby. Right. 
So talk about they've been playing these new Brighton shows of like thousand capacity, two thousand, three thousand people, and then they go down south and they are nobody. Right. Absolutely nobody. They can't get people there. There's a rumour that they go down then afterwards in sort of a funk. They get out of London and go and jump on stage in a place called the Gardenia Club, but that's not necessarily been proven. Probably a rumour. Okay. 13th of December 1961, Mike Smith from Decca, so I said about a nibble from Decca, comes up and is in the Cavern Club audience and he says to them, all right, we'll have a recording test. So they have a couple more shows. They close out their year with a, a sort of promotional photo shoot um, with a guy called Albert Marion over in Wallasey. And those photos are very well known. So the Beatles still in their leathers, but they're in front of professional backdrops. And I mean, sort of, some of them are a bit stagey where they're, he's clearly said to them, try and look like you're playing, but they're, they look like they're in a school hall. Yeah. Um, but some, some really, really good photos from the period. And that's one of the things they've done in preparation for the start of 1962, which will be, oh, we've got a recording test with Decca, a big record company. Nothing can go wrong. Right. And that's where we leave them. Okay. My voice is going as well, isn't it? I'm the one who's meant to have a cold. <laughs> Mind you, you've done all the talking so far, so, you, you know, lubricate, Paul. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry, I've, I've missed off a couple of little tiny things. Oh, go on. Uh few more dates through to the to the end. They have their, their um, Beatles Christmas party at the Cavern on the 20th, 7th of December, 1961, i.e. a gig they're calling the Beatles Christmas party. Mm-hmm. And apparently Pete wasn't well. So who do they get to drum, do you think? Uh, uh, Bongo. Bongo, yes. Richard. Richard Starkey. Ringo. Yes. I mean, to talk about sort of <laughs> preempting what was to come, really. Um, but Ringo, very shortly after this, quits the Hurricanes. So he quits Roy Storm and the Hurricanes, and he also quits his plans to go over to America, basically because right. the forms are too complicated. Okay. And he just basically goes, right, I'm off down to um, Hamburg again to play in the house band right. in one of the clubs. So does he go Does he go there? Yeah, so he goes off to Hamburg to just play in like a sort of house band for, for one of the clubs. Yeah. 31st of December, the Beatles and their entourage, as it is at the time, all meet um, by the Jolly Miller, which is a big pub on one of the big roads out of Liverpool, and they head to London. And that's where we'll leave them. Sorry, I missed that little bit off. <laughs> Are you absolutely sure this time? Oh, they can't do much more between the 31st of December and the 1st of January. You never know. Yeah. They probably fit, fitted in three gigs. <laughs> probably. All right, not, then. D- not down south, though. So while Richard Starkey was contemplating complicated forms and throwing them out, in the dustbin and music was drifting in through the window from his neighbours for some reason uh, and the boys were all downstairs in the well not downstairs in in the cavern club listening to the wireless before they get, went on for their set what might have they the be cabin li- club the cavern did I say Sorry, the cabin sounded like you, said, you said the cabin oh, that's me cold okay um, it's just there was a cabin club in Liverpool was there okay yeah. Well, maybe there too. What would they have been listening to, Paul? Well, let's find out, shall we? Probably none of these. Well, Probably maybe a couple, a couple of these, maybe. They wouldn't have had much choice if it was just what was on there, would they? If it was the wireless, for example. But let's start off with the first one, which is Helen Shapiro, Walking Back to Happiness. Funny, but it's true. 
What loneliness can do Since I've been away I have loved you more each day Walking back to happiness whoop oh yeah, yeah Said goodbye to loneliness whoop oh yeah, yeah I never knew I'd miss you Now I know what I must do Walking back to happiness I share Walking back to happiness, Paul. Whoop high, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So it's uh, Helen's next appearance on our chart. Yeah. This becomes number one on the 19th of October 1961. Three weeks at number one. And I can kind of understand why, I think. Produced by Norrie Paramore for Columbia. And it's written by John Schroeder and Mike Hawker. So they were the writers of Helen Shapiro's previous hits. And they actually win an Ivan Novello Award for this song, so it's very well received by the songwriting and composition community. Mm. So the the Novello Awards are designed to recognise achievement in the fields of songwriting and stuff. And at this point, they're going through a bit of transition because recorded music's t- becoming much more important. So mm. uh, in the ceremony the following year, this wins. The category is snappy title, this category. The A-side of the record issued in 1961, which achieved the highest certified British sales. Right. That's what it, that's what it won. New category. Okay. Um, beating, although I don't know how you can beat this, <laughs> because there's another nomination for this, this category prize, whatever you want to call it, which is the Eurovision entry, which was called Are You Sure? by a, a, a duo called the Allisons, which was like a number one on most charts, but not on the chart we're using, the official chart. Right. Um, but how can you have a nomination for highest certified sales? It either is or it isn't. Yeah. So unless they basically used a rounding up mechanism because they couldn't tell and they were, they were tied and then they just pick one. I don't know. Yeah. But there you go. Um, the year before in the novellos, Apache won um, the year's outstanding composition in jazz or beat idiom. Uh. So not the actual recording, but the composition itself. Right. So there you are. little side note on the Novello Awards there. Good stuff. But, yeah, this is her last number one. And, I mean, other than America, it's a bit of a worldwide smash, this one. Um, it only gets to number 100 in the American charts, really. Right. We know at this stage... British stuff really struggles to to make an impact in America. Um, But it's a big hit everywhere else, this one. Well, I can understand this being a a worldwide hit. Not quite sure why the Americans didn't latch on to it, but it's it's very jaunty, isn't it? It's super jaunty. It's it's almost the definition of jaunty. I mean, I kind of know this song from here and there. Um, Just know it. It's one of those ones that survived, doesn't it? It survived into I think so. It's... I mean, it's Knowledge. become Helen Shapiro's sort of flagship song or whatever you want to call it, her anthem. Uh, um, and it's very, very well known, I think, as a result. I think possibly because it is a bit silly and jaunty and a bit novelty Yeah. Um, around the edges. It's got that sort of lingering sense of people looking at it and laughing a bit. But actually, it's a really, really catchy song Yeah. with a quite a good arrangement and something a bit different to well, the other stuff going on around it. Yeah, I mean, it's simple enough to stick in your brain. Um, but uh, not one of those ones where you really discover hidden depths with a close listen. Um, oh no, no, no! Except for maybe the um, 
the weird backing singing, which is kind of when you're listening in detail, you're like, that's a strange choice. But actually, um, that's quite interesting. But yeah, getting into the music though, the intro is the intro is nice. It has a kind of a gentle refrain to get a start. Tremolo, tremolo stuff going on in the strings yeah. and the guitar to get, and then and then bang into this main theme, which is pretty mainly just a bass and guitar doubled up doing a pretty standard bass line. And the backing to this is, is mainly kind of just a... Effort. And the drums go in hell for leather. Yeah, the drums going and the guitar and the bass going dun, 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 kind of thing while she yeah. sings that big hook over the top, you know, and her, with her strange backing troupe. But, but for the main, there's not that much music in here to distract from the melodic hook. It is really all about serving that. I'm not sure if I can hear something like a guitar or a you hitting the offbeat. There is a guitar in there. Is there a guitar? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I wasn't sure until the video, which I'm sure we'll talk about that I watched, that whether those vocals were being backed up because sometimes they're being doubled up with strings. I knew there were sections where there's just strings, but the strings and the backing vocals kind of merge to make a strange squeaky sound. (laughs) They do. Um, But on purpose, you know, it's not not by accident. I think that's it. But yeah, after the intro, apart from the intro, there's really only two sections. Uh, but they have a key change in there, I think, doesn't it? Uh, it just kind of goes around that kind of um, those those two bits, and they're both quite catchy. The main walking back to happiness kind of section, and the bit where she does the drone kind of no, not the drone, but like the the bend up on the note, um, which is the kind of B section. It just kind of goes around them, and it has a key change at some point, and it just keeps it up all the way through, doesn't it? Just. Yeah, I mean, what what they've definitely done here is gone, well, what's the main feature of a Helen Shapiro record? It's Helen's voice. Yeah. Don't ever have a point where she's not singing. And if she isn't singing, put in some completely contrasting other voices as yes. well. Yeah, take so someone... She's doing some flipping heavy lifting just to get through this yeah. two and a half minutes or whatever it is. Um, yeah. And she does it really well, I think. She does. She sings it brilliantly. It's good pop. Um, I can understand why it was popular and she sings it well. So I've given it 54 for music. Uh, I think it was interesting. You mentioned a video before. So I was yeah. thinking about what's what actually is in the ensemble here and how have they done it and who played on it. And I don't know who played on it because I can't identify everyone except I think it's possibly the composer uh, or one, um, John Schroeder playing the piano, I think, possibly. Uh, I do know it is um, a guy called Bobby Orr doing the drumming. That was the only name I could find. But then I found this little film called mm. from a sequence called Life on Film and it's about how a record's made. And the record they choose to illustrate it with is this. So we have some really nice colour footage of inside Abbey Road, as well as in the sort of pressing plants and publicity departments and stuff. And so suddenly we could see that there were six string players, yeah, three backing vocalists, the piano, the drums, someone doubling up the percussion. So that's why it's got a really heavy rhythm pattern. They've got an extra percussion player in there to sort of do the emphasis stuff. Yeah. Two electric guitars, so one playing a rhythm part and one do, doubling the bass. And yeah. the bass is a, is a double bass. Right, so, that's okay, yeah. That makes sense. So you get, yeah, it's interesting how they've chosen to do the, the bass part on this. It won't be the last song we talk about in this episode that has doubled up bass as well. Oh, ah, I shall look out for that. But yeah, it's interesting because it, it, it tells us that, you know, in this bit of film, 10 microphones were used, the session yeah. lasted two and a half hours. Yeah, well, it, it, we'll get onto that a bit on production then, I think. We'll carry on yeah. talking about that in terms of the production, um, which I wrote my notes and scored before seeing that video. But um, 
yeah, I like the boppy sharpness of this, if that's a thing. Boppy sharpness. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I just find on first few listens, close listens, the strings and the backing vocal bits, I kind of like the funny high register, I think. I think it, it is a conscious decision to say, well, she sings in a in a kind of female baritone kind of voice, doesn't she? Yeah. And so, nice. like, you know, stick some, like, proper high pitch squealy type of american style vocal backing behind it because to give some 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 contrast but the way it joins with the strings also makes a funny almost synthy sound it makes them sound alien or something because they they they, they, they strings double up on some of the phrases yeah they? they do blend in a strange way yeah. occasionally i know what you mean and it, it adds that bit of novelty especially against her voice so um well so i don't think it's a it's a it's a um it's a negative point. I think it's a, it's an interesting choice. I think the song would have held up whether they'd done that or not. But it's um, it's quite clean and sharp th- um, throughout, and it's bold with her voice carrying it and not being drowned out at all. You know, voice like you say is is there throughout. Um, so they've let the melody do the singing, I think, with this. Um, um, I gave it fifty for production, but like you say, watching that video. And it's saying like this is just ten mics set around a room of performers just having a bash at the song, and that's it, isn't it? There's no multi-tracking going on here. No, not at all. No. And, Although know, I think there's an edit. I I'm I suspect even though that film implies that they get one take that they use, I feel like one minute fifty nine seconds as uh, just before they go back into a, a, a spread the news section. I feel like you can hear an edit. I feel like something stops ringing out or something. Oh, I see. It doesn't drop a beat or anything like that. It's very, very subtle, but I think there's a, an edit at 1 minute 59 seconds. But I don't know. What I think's interesting is, on the label for this, it says, with accompaniment designed by Norrie Paramore. Mm-hmm. Not arranged by. But designed. Designed by, which sort of implies that he's in control, but he sort of said to someone, I want you to do that, I want you to do that, rather than... Which mm. is a producer's role, but this word designed is really <laughs> a bit odd. Mm. I like it. I like it. I'm trying to change the. But you've now seen Laurie Paramore in action. Yes, you know, in that film. Yeah, it's good. We'll put the link up, won't we? Yeah. <laughs> I say that. I think you're going to put the link up somewhere, like on our Twitter or something, so that people can see that it's a great film. It's really interesting. I mean, yeah. It. I can't imagine it harmed, depending on when that film came out in relation to when this song came out. <laughs> Considering it talks about marketing, you think, well, one good tip for marketing is to. Feature in a film about how songs get made, um, but yeah, it's 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 really interesting. So I gave it fifty for production. So on to lyrics. Then, I mean, not surprisingly, um, it's a proper strident song, you know, in its in its literally in its lyrics, the yes. triumphant walking back to happiness theme is bombastic in the music and the words. You know, it's walking back to the happiness with your elbows raised high, isn't it? Doing a proper march. oh, it's definitely it's elbow music. Yeah. Yes. Definite elbow music. Spread the news, I'm on the way. You can almost see her striding down the street and declaring this to the world whilst... It's the same street that keeps on coming up in my every time I talk about lyrics. But people are doffing their cap to her as she walks past and like winking and doing the Spider-Man pointy fingers. And she's going, hey, walking back. You know, she, I, I, I just, it's one of those big showy songs and the lyrics kind of reflect that. It also has a... A bit of a beatly start to with it, you know, with the intro, with the um, um, where is it actually? I, I might be getting myself. Mixed it's up. a bit like what they do in um, "Bad to Me" for Billy J. Kramer, isn't it? 
um, I never knew I'd miss you and making up for things we said. Where's that in there? I'm making up for... Th oh, I'm thinking about things we said today. That's what I'm thinking of. I'm making up for things we said and mistakes to which they led. The only difference between that and something like things we said today is the um, whoopa, oh yeah, yeah, that comes in between them. But I mean, certainly it's good evidence that uh, yeah, yeahs and yeah, yeahs aren't, aren't a pure Beatle invention in the British charts. You know, they feature happily in other things. Yeah. Although the Beatles never went down the yay yay da bum de boo no, 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 hang on. Yay, yay, badumbidoo. No, I was right. Yeah, da that's how it's been rendered on the lyrics side. Yeah, yeah, yeah badumbidoo. Um, yeah, it, I, I, I like it. Um, yeah, the walking to something and saying farewell to something, it's also also a little bit hello, goodbye as well. Because it kind of changes the direction of things. Walking to something and walking away from something. Hello to this, goodbye to that. It's uh, it's yeah, it's good lyrics. Fifty-two for lyrics. I've given it. Okay, which gives it fifty-two overall, actually. Yeah. So as this is going to be Helen's last appearance in the charts, oh, I'll it? just mention um, that we're still a year away from the, her tour with the Beatles. You know that doesn't happen until um, February nineteen sixty-three, or the Beatles tour with her is a better way of putting it. But that tour does also include a certain Danny Williams again. Mm -hmm. That Talk name about. will crop up later. And I do want to point people, if they haven't ever seen it, there was an appearance that Helen Shapiro did on Ready Steady Go in um, October 1963, where she's doing a song called Look Who It Is, which I think is a really, really good song. I'm surprised it wasn't a number one. Um, but the the people she's miming it to on Ready Steady Go, we've got the backs to the camera, there's three people. And of course, these people are John Lennon, Ringo Starr and George Harrison. And I don't know if Paul isn't included because there's only three verses for her to move like from one to the next to the next. Right. But obviously they turn around and she addresses it to them. And obviously by this point, they know each other very well because of the tour. Yeah. Although she's still only really, really, really young. Yeah. Um, and John pulls one of his stupid faces and Ringo sort of does these sort of puppy eyes and lays his head on her shoulder. George um, pretends to hit her in the face um, <laughs> in a charming beetle way. <clears throat> But uh, it's, a, it's a very funny clip, basically. You can tell that they're all good friends and that they've arranged to do this silly thing yeah. for her to present her song. Um, John looks the most uncomfortable, though, which is quite funny. So uh, we'll, we make sure to share that clip. If no one's seen it, that's really good. Oh, OK, cool. Um, so, yeah, I was going to say, because um, she's still only like... Well, she was 14 when she recorded Walking Back to Happiness. So, and, that, and you're saying this is her last appearance at number one? Yeah. So, I mean, she, has, she has some more hits, but she didn't get to number one. They required one. to get back to number one. So, uh, I mean, imagine peaking it. What I also like is that at the time she was like really into sort of jazz and, and blues and stuff and thought that something like Walking Back to Happiness was naff. You know, when yeah. you're a teenager and you think something's rubbish. But she did it, and it turned out to basically be the song that everyone thinks of when they think of Helen Shapiro. She's got a great voice, and you can tell yeah, that she's... It's, it's fascinating She's voice, into really. jazz and blues. It, it, and watching the video of her singing does seem like, how is that voice coming out of that person? It's strange. Mm -hmm. um, okay, let's move on to the next one, Paul, which is Elvis Presley, Marie's the name, his latest flame. He talked and talked, and I heard him say... That she had the longest, blackest hair The prettiest green eyes anywhere And Marie's a name 
of his latest flame Though I smiled, the tears inside were burning I wished him luck and then he said goodbye He was gone but still his words kept returning What else was there for me to do but cry Marie's the name, his latest flame, Paul Yeah, I can't make anything funny out of that <laughs> Well, Elvis is back, and he's gone a bit more towards his old-school style for mm-hmm. the couple that we're going to talk about here. We've yeah. been we've been assaulted by double A-sides this entire year, haven't we? And double we're about A-sides. To, yeah. So anyway, Marie's the Name is Latest Flame, becomes number one on the 9th of November 1961. It spends four weeks at the top, and it's the usual crowd. It's written by Doc Pomus and Mort Schumann, produced by Steve Scholes, engineered by good old Bill Porter... Yeah. Recorded in RCA Studio B in Nashville with the usual crowd of the Nashville A team and Elvis's associates. Um in this case we've got Scotty Moore and Neil Matthews Jr. on guitars, Bob Moore on double bass, Hank Garland on bass guitar, so you've got a doubling of the the bass sound on this one. Ah. Um I probably mentioned Hank Garland more in the next one we talk about. DJ Fontana and Buddy Harmon on drums and percussion. Floyd Kramer, Gordon Stoker, piano. There's lots of doubling up on this. Boots Randolph on claves. And it's it's funny, really. It's, it seems like that's quite a lot of people to do what sounds yeah. quite like a skiffle track, yeah, it's really. Just, yeah, there's much more people than I thought would have been involved. Yeah, so they do 12, 12 takes. Take 8 forms the master, just for info's sake. There you go. Um, but the interesting thing with this is... Obviously, it's a hit in America, but this is a Del Shannon album track. Oh, is it? So there's a version of this by Del Shannon as well, where there's, there's like a sort of Musitron section in it. Oh, cool. Um, which is very different recording. But this is, yeah, what I think is really interesting about this after, you know, Wooden Heart and all the big, you know, adapted European folk ballads that he's been doing. Yeah. These couple of tracks we're going to talk to, he's suddenly like, oh, let's do um, some rock and roll. Yes. Okay. Not before time, from our point of view. Yeah. This is it for me. It's a bit more like the Elvisy Elvis I was hoping to hear. Yeah. If, you know, when we started the series, I thought, oh, I'm going to get to do some Elvis. You know, I, you know I'm, I'd like to dive into that a bit more, not realising that we'd missed all the early good stuff and we're stuck in his kind of any old pants that sells phase. And I say any old pants that sells, obviously, f- from a point of view of who cares if it's rock and roll or cu- cutting edge or trendy or not. It'll just, it, as long as it's... It'll shift the records, which he's obviously doing very well. So it's yeah. good. It's good to have a bit of a bit of rock and roll, a bit of R and B, a bit of life in it, a bit of a bit of backbeat. Um, I like the groove on this, um, the strumming and the drumming pattern, and and how his melody kind of sits over the top of it. Um, we've got that kind of, for want of a better term, that kind of. Chunky chunk rhythm, chunk 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 well, chunk it's chunk, the, it's chunk chunk. Bo Diddley, isn't it? Yeah, it's the Bo Diddley. Beat. That's it. That's the one. Yeah, people might be familiar with the things like George Michael's Faith in a more modern setting. Not that much more modern anymore. <laughs> no, still, that's, that's, that's very very many years old. That's yeah. all. But you know, it's got that that. But it, it yeah, it's but the melody is 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 slightly more progressive for a rock melody, isn't it? It kind of it goes it kind of has a nice rise and fall to it. Um, he sings it very well, uh, but it's it's yeah it's it's the Elvis of the period. It's not the old rocker Elvis on this one particularly. 
He's got very good control of his voice and you can hear it. Yeah. yeah. He's doing a good job with the story of the song in his performance, yeah. I think. Rather than just going like a rocker, you know, just going for it. I think bringing, bringing in that melody to kind of land in the kind of little section changes is great. And we're kind of basically back to three chords rock and roll, done well. Um, I like it when it kicks up a gear and the piano... I think it... Like, so it kicks up a gear is in like the, 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 the second section's... Like they start moving between two chords very quickly, and the piano. I think a piano joins in. Yeah, or, does, yeah. or goes up on a higher. I think register. that's the bit that is the musitron on the Del Shannon version. Yeah, there's like a arpeggio, and the the piano that's is already it, yeah. already there, just hitting the same chords and everything else. But then it goes into a higher register, and the bass sounds awesome. So now I understand why. We'll talk about that in production. I love the bass sound in this, and especially in that section. It's just the change the song needs, which is so simple. Um, such a simple song for the rest of it and it's really just supporting that melody with a cool groove but it, it it turns it from for me from being what had been a kind of passable song to, to a pretty good one having that, that, that extra fast section in it if I was an early Elvis fan at this time having been in despair for the last two years of what he was coming out with this would be bring, bringing me back to him you know yeah so um, I've given it 58 for music okay um, but yeah onto production it's well. I mean, I had said it's very neat and straightforward production, um, featuring Elvis's voice mainly, uh, and nicely locked in drums and bass and piano. Um, but actually, from the sound of it, there's quite a lot gone into making that sound. You know, to keep it rocking along. From what you've said, with all those extra players. Yeah, they seem to have just thickened things up quite a lot here, yeah. and and just decided to do it in a particular way. Um, you know, they get through. One of the things I've been learning about these Elvis things, because the session sheets are available and you can yeah. see exactly how much they recorded on one night. You know, this is a session that started at one in the morning, went to four a.m., then they had a half hour break, and then went from four thirty a.m. to seven thirty a.m. <laughs> and I think these two songs were recorded in the second block of that. It's just the thought of making music at that time and managed to do all this arrangement and get it right and re- check it and play it. It's just a strange, when, especially time. when you're going like having that many people in the room to do it. Is that was that like at Elvis's behest, or was that just the way that this like they more or less just roll think, up whenever like, there was studio time available, or what? I think it's a mix of things, but you know, when you get to be a big star, you schedules start fitting around you rather than you fitting around other. I guess schedules. if you're often playing shows and having late nights. Yeah. And yeah. then and, uh, and your energy's all well. It's like what happens with the Beatles. The Beatles are essentially nocturnal animals. Yeah. I guess so. Um, yeah. yeah. You know your your entire sort of energy shifts yeah, into well, the night, doesn't it? Just become like you say nocturnal. So yeah, so like why little why golem golem creatures? Yeah, and I guess if you if you combine that with partying as well and things, yes, then um, a work day may as well just follow the same kind of and then as a, amphetamines as well. You sort of start using them a little bit just to help you get through a busy weekend, and then suddenly it's like, well, the, oh, the following week's busy as well. I'll have some more preludin or whatever, yeah, or, and so on and so on, and suddenly everything like your whole physi- physiological system sort of gone mad. Yeah. Okay. I'm not a doctor, but you know that's yes. what I think. Right. Well, I mean, um, so anyway, um, I, I'd say I love it when the bass double. I mean, I know if the bass doubles up all the way through, but you can definitely hear really, really... There's a drop-in section where I think it's suddenly... It's it's when it goes into the faster bit. Boom, boom, boom. That's the yeah. bit, yeah. And that's, that's where it sounds really, really good. It sounds brilliant, actually. Um, the gears section comes to life 
simply from having the piano go up the register and, and the, the little guitar stabs on that bass you know, doubling it up. I think this is one of those studies in how you lead, how, how you know, well, actually, it changed my mind a little bit. If how it sounds like a little makes a song go a, a long way, um, if the song is good. But mm. um, actually, it sounds like they, they got that by getting a nice thick sound. I think it comes together nicely on this one, even though it's um, it's simple. So, 62 for production. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, lyrics, then. So, lyrics, lyrics, lyrics. So, I think this is a slightly more interesting take on the whole jilted, jealous love song, isn't it? Because... And it has a slight reminiscence of something like "She Loves You" or "You're Gonna Lose That Girl." In that, there's a third party in all this. It's there's someone yeah, there's yeah. someone in the chain of the, of events. Is that there's a person telling him, "Hey, I've got this new girlfriend. She's great," um, and he's telling all about all all about her, including that her name is Marie. And then he's the 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 person who you know our protagonist is thinking, "Oh." That's my girlfriend. <laughs> or at least I thought she was. Um, what? Yeah. Um, so it's not quite the same, but it's adding that other perspective into the narrative. So it does turn it into more of a story. So it's a novel take on the kind of tired formula of you left me and I'm sad and I'm angry, etc., etc. Blah blah blah. Yeah, because he's also accepting, isn't he? He's yeah. like, okay, I'm I'm not happy about it, but I'm not going to let that guy suffer my feelings I'll... but then yeah so this is when he gets it like he also says he told me about being in love with you and it just reminds me of that Paul McCartney interview or many yeah, interviews yeah. where he says like she loves you not I love you she loves you you know you're adding yeah, that yeah. so this was kind of a bit like that as well you know it, 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 well they certainly the Beatles definitely would have covered this yeah, well, I can imagine. And it was, this. and it's probably a Paul vocal on this. I don't think there's any anyone's confirmed it, but as far as we know, it was they played it and Paul did the, the vocals on it. Yeah, I could absolutely imagine this, and and I like the um, the line Marie's the name of his late of this of his latest flame. That's a great kind of line to bring the whole thing together. So I'm giving it 55 for lyrics, which gives it 58 altogether. Okie dokie. Right, flip the disc over. Okay, do a flip the disc sound. Flip. Right, so next we have Elvis again and Little Sister. Well, I dated your big sister And I took her to a show I went for some candy Along came Jim Dandy And they snuck right out the door Little sister, don't you Little sister, don't you Little sister, Paul. No, big brother, Paul. <laughs> um, so, yeah, obviously this occupies the same space on the charts as it's a double A side. Mm. Again, like we've said, same session, most of the same players, uh, written by the same team. If you want a Beatles link for this song... In uh, there's a Elvis film in 1970 where he's um, playing, and he does a medley of songs, in, which includes this and "Get Back." What? <laughs> yeah, Elvis does. Yeah. Weird. So, yeah, mad in it. But again, this is same studio, same session. He does 12 takes of this. For the last one is the master. Um, so you know, it's it's almost yeah. Like a just a, a, 
a repeat of exactly what we've said, except that there are a couple of different changes. It's a different sounding sort of song. It's rock and roll again, but it's a more yeah. classic rock and roll sound. This the guitar's more what you think of as as earlier rock and roll sound. In yeah. fact, it does sound like a, a channeling a bit of shaking all over, don't they? Really? Yes, it does. Yes. Um, or know. the influences that influence that song, anyway. Yeah. Um, but what I like on this in the music which to jump straight into that is of course we've got the double bass going again but we've got this guy um so hank garland who i mentioned before he is a brilliant guitar player but he so he's back on to electric lead guitar on this so he's the guy who's doing the the little shredding bits on this hmm. and what we get is a that a space then for a guy called harold bradley to come in and he's playing what i think is baritone guitar oh. which is what they call the, the tic-tac bass sound so this is another doubled up bass you've got the double bass playing yeah for it's big round bassy sound and then you've got this you know like that sort of yeah thing that a baritone guitar is designed to do which is what i like mm. to hear yeah i i think the um i wonder about the bass the transition to electric bass for certain acts that traditionally used double bass and the fact that there's a, some doubling up starting to happen you know i wonder if that's the kind of the um the gateway to let's just use the electric bass even though yeah, th- we love yeah, the, the, the the acoustic bass sound, it's not as practical an instrument. And once we start getting into electric, electrified bands, being able to plug into a cab and yeah. an amp directly without without mics and stuff becomes important, doesn't it? So, but yeah, sort of from a production point of view, though, it's, it is interesting in the studio that they're using two bass instruments. Yeah, to it's giving them different textures, which I think is is an interesting thing rather yeah. than just going back to a stripped down rock and roll ensemble like the first records he made you know yeah it's just an interesting in the the bigger picture you know i wonder about the transition to because obviously we know because we we are alive now that electric bass comes to dominate most of rock and pop doesn't it you know so yeah so there must have been a period where you could kind of chart the downfall of the acoustic bass kind of being used and we're in a period where we're seeing a bit of both so hey who knows yeah um but it's a promising start, uh, a bit of rock and roll. It's a bit of a Franken song, this one, though. It's Franken like, song? Yeah, it's a few riffs that I feel like you said about shaking all over. It's a few riffs. Oh, yeah, I don't, th- I don't think it's very um, clever. No, th- the bass line is obviously quite generic. It's not, you, you know. It sounds like you've heard it somewhere else done more classically. Yeah, the main everywhere. riff sounds a bit like shaking all over, but isn't quite. But it's not the. If you heard that, you're thinking, oh, oh no, it's not the song I thought it was. And there's a different song in the intro, which is. There's another riff in there as well, which is also like sounds like something else. Yeah, it's, it's somehow there's some great guitar. I mean, the the guitarist is doing a great job, uh, and is doing a lot for to kind of thicken this song out. But somehow it doesn't come together as a song in its own right. It, if it wasn't Elvis singing, you'd think it was a fairly cool set filler kind of rock and roll song but not a great one you know um they have a bit of, there's a bit of a fun bit which gives it a bit of personality with the little sister don't you do what your big sister does line where it's done in octave like he's doubled up isn't he and someone's singing the bass below. yeah he's got the jordanaires in there to sort of help him along but yeah but that only starts to happen kind of a good minute into the song and then becomes the hook but there's quite a lot of song before you get to that first time he actually does that i think the song has an arrangement problem in that it doesn't really settle into a hook until like i say quite far into it so we don't get a settled feel of what it's heading towards or why it was 5 a.m in the morning they didn't know what they were doing well exactly yeah and i say the guitar 
Oh yeah, so it starts a bit like nice and sleazy or whatever. What's it called? Um, I don't know what the song is called. Actually, I don't know. I might have just made that up. You know the one that the that George had to play to prove himself to John on the bus. Oh, raunchy. Raunchy. Yeah. Doon, 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 do, 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 do. It has something like that yeah. in it for like two bars in the intro, but that never comes back. It does. That's what I mean by it being a bit of a Franken song. I can't argue though because I'm liking hearing Elvis go rock again. So it's so much better for me than the stuff we've been having so far. And I can easily imagine the Beatles doing this, for example, like the last one. Yeah, I don't think they did this one, but uh, there's no evidence of it. Of the two, um, you'd do the other one, wouldn't you? Yeah. This, I've given it 46 for music. I quite like it, but I just don't think it's the feature song. It would be a B-side if it... I think. The yeah, I've, I'm baffled that it's a double A, really. Yeah. But, you know, it did well. It, it, on its own merits, it got to number five in America. Um, and here it's number one, because it's double A. Well, so. there you go. That's the that's the classic double A swizz. <laughs> don't really don't get it sometimes the double A thing. Um, okay, so production. Um, I say I love the guitar sound in this one. It's got that crisp echo, that kind of that trebly kind of um, sound that, like you say, is more reminiscent of earlier rock and roll. Um, the bass is nice and chuntering, which we now know is because there's a lot of pick sound in there, which is coming from the baritone. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd picked up I'd picked up on the pick sound, you know, which. Is, which will be because of the, yeah, you get a lot yeah, more of that. Yeah, it's what they it. call the, like the tic-tac bass sound. Yeah, so it adds a lot of ghost rhythms to the whole backbeat, doesn't it? So a ghost kind of note type of, is kind of like a, a not quite sounded note, a bit of a string sound that's also yeah, adding sort of to the a, kind a of... Percussive, a percussive element, yeah. but a percussive element that's different to the one you would get from slapping a double bass. Absolutely. The drums are solid. Um, I say, is there only one guitar doing it? In here, just, no. There's like three guitars on this at oh, least. Right. Well, yeah. that's what I was saying. They don't. They manage to not play over each other to a point where you feel like there's a lot going on. It feels to me like one guitar really doing a lot of work. But um, yeah, the doubling of the vocals fun. It has that real authentic rock and roll sound with just maybe a little less subtlety than the last song. So I've given it fifty six for production. Mm-hmm. Okay, on to lyrics then. Um, I'm not as keen on the, yeah. I'm not as keen on these lyrics. Um, although I am intrigued by whoever Jim Dandy is. I can tell you who Jim Dandy. Oh, is. it's not just a, it's not just a name that happens to rhyme with a. No. With whoever it rhymes with a um, candy. No, no. Okay. Jim Dandy is a specific reference, so it's the song makes reference to um, reasons why someone may have lost a girl. Okay. In this case, a big sister. And the implication is that along came Jim Dandy. So Jim Dandy was a song recorded by Laverne Baker in 1955. And there's a few cover versions. Right. Um, but sometimes called Jim Dandy to the Rescue, which is a song about a guy called Jim Dandy who just turns up and rescues sort of maidens in distress. Right. Really. And it's a really good song, actually, Jim Dandy. Um, is this it's right? like, um, yeah. I take it the dandy, I, dandy relates to kind of being a dandy. A yeah, kind of dashing I think that's, line of action type of thing. Yeah, right? that's it. I was sitting on a mountaintop, 30,000 feet to drop, tied me on a runaway horse. Uh-huh, that's right, of course. Jim Dandy to the rescue. Um, then there's a one where a guy, Jim Dandy, turns up to comfort someone called Sue. I was riding on a submarine, got a message from my mermaid queen. She was hanging on a fishing line. Mr. Dandy didn't waste no time. Huh. And so that's, so that's a song that uh, well, Laverne better, Baker's song is um, just... This. Yeah, yeah, it is. So it's a better song in all. In so all Jim honesty. Dandy is a kind of a, has come from that song as a kind of a 
a, a knight in shining armour coming to rescue yeah. ladies from bad situations. So in this case, a guy who is quite happy to go out with someone's sister if he gets... Little sister if he gets knocked back by it. So he's probably good for good on Jim Dandy. <laughs> Um, yeah, and then and then and then the um, the boll weevil gets a bit of a gets a, a mention, which isn't something oh, that happens. Yeah. A, a, an evil boll weevil, which I looked up a boll weevil, and it's a beetle, basically. Yeah. So but, link, well, it's link for us there. Well, if you like, except it's a beetle that devastates cotton crops, um, and that's why it's and, evil. It, and it's still the major pest for for cotton, um, uh-huh. despite campaigns to eradicate. I did it. wonder why the boll. So it's pretty evil if cotton's your business. Yeah. Part of this kind of like, you know, this some of this reminds me of the, um, Spin It On. You know, the Wings song that we did in Series 3. Oh, right, yeah. Where he's like, cousins, um, you know, going... It's all a very adolescent kind of love song fodder, isn't it? Um, oh, yeah. Sp- yeah. Especially when you start talking about pigtails and having grown. It's all a bit... No, uh, it's got two of these. It's got one of the worst rhyming couplets um, but you been a growing and baby it's been showing is yeah. absolutely vomit inducing <laughs> it's horrible yeah I've given it 36 for lyrics which gives blimey it, that's generous which is 46 overall so there we go next poll we have Tower of Strength Frankie Vaughan if I were a tower of strength I'd walk away I'd look in your eyes And here's what I'd say I don't want you I don't need you I don't love you anymore And I'd walk out the door And you'd be down on your knees And you'd be calling to me But a tower of strength is something I never Tower of strength, Paul well, not the way we're both feeling. I think neither of us are a tower of strength today. We'll get through it, though, Gary. We'll get through. Okay. Right. Okay, tower of strength. Oh, this is such a lovely little understated number. <laughs> so subtle in its performance. Um, okay, Frankie Vaughan. This becomes number one on uh, 7th of December, 1961. It gets three weeks at the top. This is a Burt Bacharach, Bob Hilliard song, produced by Ivor Raymond. It's uh, released on Philips, and it's a cover. The, um, a guy called Gene McDaniels has a number five hit in America in 1961 with it. In a version, I prefer to this one. Frankie Vaughan is a huge star. Absolutely huge. So he was born in 1928, died in 1999. He's from Liverpool. Right. So he was uh, born on Devon Street, which is now a load of shops and warehouses near London Road in town. But he was a, sort of a, a massive star. He was in loads of films. He had lots of hit, big vocal hits. He would do a lot of TV and stuff like that. Um, I mean, in 1960, he was in a film with Marilyn Monroe. Right. Um, and he's a lead in a film in 1961 called The Right Approach. And he's been releasing singles since 1950. So by this point, he's been around a long time in terms of popular success. So he predates rock and roll. Yeah. Um. He had a number one single called The Garden of Eden, or Garden of Eden rather, not The Garden of Eden. Garden of Eden uh, in 1956, and this is his only other number one. So, big popular singer. Trying to find links to the Beatles has been an interesting one. You'd think because he's a Liverpool guy, you'd be able to trace loads of them. But I couldn't really. 
And if anyone knows of anything other than the fact he covers the Beatles song Wait and releases it as a single in 1965. Right. And it's quite an interesting version. It didn't a, chart. Yeah. No. Um, but yeah, this is so a type of thing that gets into the charts that I don't understand at all, really. <laughs> I'm glad that you said that. Oh, you're not, we're um, not going to be and, in disagreement with each other on this one then. But it's the sort of thing that it sends, oh, we've talked about this before, sends record labels into sort of craziness because they're like, oh, that's been a hit for someone over in America. We need we need to be the ones who get our hit version out. Right. Um, and so you have a load of competition. So in this case, we have Frankie Vaughan being produced for Philips. And at the same time, we've got George Martin for Parlophone producing a version by a singer called Paul Ravens, which flunks and doesn't chart. Right. And much as I'm sad for George Martin not getting the hit, I'm not sad at all for Paul Ravens not getting the hit because he goes on to be a very famous glam rocker in the 1970s with a very, very bad um, story to go from that point onwards. Yes. So I'll leave people up leave that up to people if they don't know who Paul Ravens is to look him up or rather just don't and ignore him and hope he rots um yeah so this this version wins but that's not saying much yeah (laughs) because what the hell is going on with this song some timpani that's what's going on with this song I was put it on as I do think oh this is why I don't recognise the name of this one I wonder what this next one will be I've just had some nice rock and roll Elvis and a bit of Helen Shapiro. What's the... Ah! <laughs> like, <laughs> throwing my headphones across the room, wondering what's just happened to my head. Timps and brass blaring out. And then Frankie, just before just taking them on. Like, come on then. You yeah. think you're loud? <laughs> Wait till I start. <laughs> yes, that is very much it. It's, it's There's no subtlety to this performance Jeez. at all. And you, to think how big a, a success he is, he's he does this insanely forceful performance like you say it's like he's trying to compete with an orchestra yes already been ramped up to the nth degree it's it's like he's shredding his throat yeah it's it's nuts it doesn't it's just a feat it's just like a a feverish kind of performance that just builds and builds like i i wonder if they're trying to go for something like a roy orbison type of only the lonely type of thing that kind of but there's just no. It's just they're just way There's off. Just the no mark. dynamics. Yeah, because this is he's just screaming over the top as loud as he can, and then the strings are trying to get in on the action. And we'll talk about a lot of that in production. But from a music arrangement and performance point of view, it's just all go and all volume, and I find it very stressful and not very yeah, pleasant I've, to listen to. That's a very good way of putting it. Me too. I find it quite stressful to yeah, listen to. Yeah, it's not. I mean, I'm not even that into the melody. I say it's trying to build like a Roy Orbison song, but it's not getting there to my ears. Even when it gets to where it's going, it's like, well, what was the point of making such a fuss of that? Um, it builds to that titular line, uh, this Tower of Strength line, which doesn't really feel like it was worth the ascent up that Tower of Noise to get there. I'm just not... I really don't like it. <laughs> I know, it's a shame, because the, the Gene McDaniels version, the American original, is is much better. It's It's much more stripped back. It's still got the, but it's like one trombone doing it, so it's got a bit more of a club yeah, I, feel I rather think, than a rah feel. A big, a big like, yeah. I think I'd quite, I would quite like that theme if it wasn't just so overdone. The bit of it, I think I could like it 
But maybe I should go and listen to that, that version. But for this version, I've only given it 32 for music because I'm not very into it at all. I mean, and as far as my production point of view, I mean, I pretty much said it all. It's just noise and echo and a guy trying desperately to rise above it. Timpani just like... Bad idea to have timpani ringing out as well over it all. Like... They're not re- when the timpani don't even sound that dynamic because everything else is so loud. You know that you've you've got yeah. all your sliders up to ten and there's nowhere left to go. It's like I can't. My notes to- are simply say, "Who wants some reverb?" Because I've got a job lot here to get rid of. Yeah, yeah. So I've given it twenty for production because I think it's one of the worst songs we've had so far. No, I mean I don't say. understand Ivor Raymond. Uh, Ivor Raymond as a producer clearly not very good or not to my tastes at least. Yeah. Uh, he goes on to be very important in sort of as an arranger and and sort of di- musical director for Dusty Springfield and we know she has some super hits. But what he's doing here I've no idea. No. Uh, it's just yeah. It's a bit much. <laughs> I think it's just it could be summed up in the words it's a bit much. <laughs> so Yeah. And that's for most of the songs. So let's go on to the Three weeks then. at number one, though. I mean, this is... I know. It, I, what's, it, what? It strikes me as being like, it's so... I'll try to find a, a, a similar example. Sometimes something seems exciting because it's loud or bright or brash. And you're sort of like, oh, brilliant. Yeah. And you sort of gobble, gobble, gobble. I've like, yum, 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 yum. And you sort of realise that you get sick very quickly. And it's like the, the... I suspect like three weeks after this had been at number one, people were like, what was that? madness what, we were doing were we buying collectively this. doing yeah they've been yeah. on some sort of frankie vaughan hangover it's it's so strange i'm sure and we haven't context... even talked about the lyrics yet no which we're about to but i'm sure there's some context to why some of these things get to number one that we're not always aware of like like you kind of gave us well, a hint with the with oh the yeah Johnny remember huge... me thing you know the fact but that he was like, a huge star yeah just just his just his name power alone anyway and the lyrics then, let's see if that saves it. <sighs> I mean, for a start, what does it mean? If I was a tower of strength, I'd walk away. You wouldn't be walking anywhere, mate. You'd be a tower. <laughs> uh, it's, but um, it's it's a it's another bitter revenge song. It is, essentially. It's, it's horrible. It's like, it's a song about saying, if I wasn't such a pathetic little crybaby, <laughs> I'd be telling you to get lost, you <laughs> stupid idiot. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. It's like he's just he's saying. And I'm, you'd be begging me. You'd be saying, "Don't call me a stupid you, idiot, Frankie Vaughan," and I'd be going, "You are now get out." Yeah, it's it's someone having a having a fantasy of just being horrible. It's, it's not hard. You know. it, it's 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 he's like I'm I'm not even strong enough to be vindictive enough to make you cry and grovel. I just wish I was. <laughs> One day I wish I was strong enough to make other people cry. <laughs> what kind of what kind of way into you'll a song is that? You'll all pay. One day you'll all pay. It's just a crock. I, I, I've given, given it 24 lyrics, so it gets 24 overall. Oh. It's, it's, not, it's, it's, it's not a good one. Let's move on to the last song this week, which is Danny Williams and Moon River. Moon River Wider than a mile I'm crossing you in style Someday Old dream maker You heart 
Well, I'm not going to say anything silly about this because I love this song so much um, compared to the one we've just had yes. in terms of songs that sound a, a little bit like they should be standards. This essentially is a standard now. Um, okay, there's loads of versions of this, but this is our last song for 1961. So this is our... Right. It's our Christmas uh, number one, is it? Or No, I think that must be um, Frankie Tower of Strength. Because this gets to number one on the 28th of December, oh, right. 1961. Really closing out the year. Yeah, basically. But this is produced for HMV by Norman Newell. So obviously people are very familiar with Moon River from the film Breakfast at Tiffany's. Mm-hmm. Now, this is obviously not the version that's in that because that's sung by Audrey Hepburn in the film. And the actual hit versions, as it were, from the film is the Henry Mancini version. So it's written by Henry Mancini and Johnny Mercer. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mancini's version gets which is the instrumental version gets to number 11 in America number 44 in the UK there's a version by a guy called Jerry Butler as well which gets to number 11 in America which I don't think is very good somehow manages to strip out everything I like about the <laughs> the, the song oh, right. um, but this version I'm pleased to say is the big British hit now again as well someone I haven't mentioned is Andy Williams who has who doesn't release this as a single in the UK, but is the version that most people think of now when they think of the pop version of Moon River. But I'm pleased to say we have Danny Williams' nice British-produced yeah. version of this song, which is what we're talking about here. Um, and you, people could probably tell I'm quite enthusiastic about this song mm-hmm. and, and Danny Williams' performance, to be honest. So... The, the name has been trailed. I've mentioned him a couple of times already. So he was uh, born in South Africa in Port Elizabeth, which is now um, Kaberka is how it's spelt nowadays or pronounced nowadays. That's the actual name of it now uh, in the Eastern Cape of South Africa. And he, he's born under apartheid, but he, he basically gets out by becoming a, a performer in his teens and doing these touring shows, gets to London and Norman Newell sees him in a show and offers him a contract. So he's quite a young man at the time as well. Not Helen Shapiro young, but still quite young. Um, This is his third single, and it's his breakthrough. Um, He has another top ten hit called The Wonderful World of the Young, which gets to number eight in 1962. And as I've mentioned, we've seen that he turned up at the Tower Ballroom to do a show that the Beatles were playing, and that he was on this package tour with... Helen Shapiro and the Beatles. So he was around doing all this stuff while Moon River was a big hit. He's got a lovely voice. It's a great song and it's a great recording of a great song. It's one of those... It's kind of... I would personally find it baffling if people didn't just fall head over heels when they first heard Moon River. Because to me it does something insanely good musically henry mancini's just an absolute genius and i think johnny mercer's lyrics are are, are fantastic as well but this is one of those songs that i just it sort of goes beyond me liking it it's just extraordinary oh well that's nice you should you should put some scores in a spreadsheet about it well no i'll leave that to you to upset me about it i don't think i'll upset you i like it as well and 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 thank god for this song after Tower of Strength. I can almost feel the collective 
yeah, will of the people the, from the 1961 who, who didn't like Tower of Strength buying this. All the people who did buy it, Tower of Strength, going, what were we doing? And then getting an opportunity to buy something nice. Yeah. Um, I, I, and I, I, didn't. I hadn't even twigged on that, Gary, but you're absolutely right. We've just come off Tower of Strength, which just is just an assault on the senses to this, which is absolutely full of dynamics and pull and push yeah. and play and, and, and subtlety. Oh. I, yeah, didn't, yeah. I didn't really, I didn't really twig the contrast. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah. It, it feels like it would have been welcome relief for those people who just got their music from the radio, thinking, oh, "God, this is, well, this is getting played instead." But um, and I had no idea going into listening to this if this was the original version or one. I, I kind of presumed it wasn't. I don't. I haven't. Breakfast at Tiffany's is one of those films I don't think I've seen and want, will sit and watch one day. Oh, it's worth it. Um. But I know vaguely that this song is a classic from the cinema and that this probably wasn't the version. But um, it, it was certainly a good choice for him to sing because it showcases that amazing voice he's got. I can't even imagine, imagine being able to sing like that. It's just amazing. Yeah. Um, and obviously, it's such a great composition with a timeless quality and an amazing sense of ambience and romance captured in the kind of gentle string backing which playing the broken chords what's the thing that's playing the kind of the kind of plucking kind of dum ching ching dum ching oh ching. Not sure. i presume it's a guitar in there yeah it's just, just uh, that's the kind of thing that's kind of setting the back back well, really. it's the jeff love orchestra with the rita williams singers who okay. we've had before on other other tracks oh, right. as well um it just imagine the thing the thing I love about music and, and recording and, and all this stuff we're talking about is the fact that you can get these names like someone like Norman Newell can go in with one artist and one group of like musicians and backing singers and stuff and produce one type of thing. And they can go in with the same group of backing musicians and singers and another artist and produce something that's totally different Yeah, in the same studio. And that's one of the... I just find that mind-blowingly brilliant. Yeah, yeah, that that that, um, that, that diversity of a of of possibilities of what a, of what a studio allows yeah, you to what do, you can do, and and, if, yeah. and your choice of material and the, and the skill of the artists. It's just all fantastic. That goes to the heart of love of music, though, doesn't it? As well, just especially when, oh, yeah, when you're yeah. involved in the, in the making of it. So yeah, it, even the in this the big you know, what I would classically think of as a bit of a cheesy choir backing feels right here when put up against his voice, that kind of Disney-sounding choir, that filmic-sounding choir. It, it, it's it's what you want for this kind of song. And, and, and with his voice and the nuance and the golden tones he gets, it kind of, it, it, it it's, well, it drifts down on that river musically. So it's, it's a lovely song musically. I've given it a 70 for music. I find it very hard to criticise, like I say. I think it's, just by any standard, it's it's an amazing piece of music. So, yeah, it's, it does several things that I, that I find rich. So there's, like, the, the major to minor chord shift, like a, an F major to an F minor. Yeah. Like, fo- following on the way you sort of have this little semitone drop. You have these chord inversions where, like, uh, you've... you've moving the bass opposite to the way that the melody's going. You've got these sneaky little semitone shifts and this, and in this as well, you've got this, um, r- rallentando feel, this sort of push pull of tempo as much as anything as well, which if, I mean, one thing when I was researching this today, I found the original demo of 
um, Henry Mancini and Johnny Mercer just demoing it for presumably to show to the film producers. Yeah. And even that version of just like piano and voice done roughly for the purposes of display is like chills, chills down your spine. Yeah. That's, that, that sounds like an interesting thing to listen to. Um, I'd like to listen to that. So on to production. I, I think this is what we lose nowadays. I'm going to say the word nowadays, which you always have to say like nowadays. I think we, we lose nowadays, I think, with, with, with singers. We, have, we do have great singers out there, but they either belt it out all the way through so that it can be easily kind of processed, I think. Or it's processed so much anyway, it doesn't matter. But this singer can just sing <laughs> like it needs nothing but a microphone pointed the right at them from the right distance some great technique to know how they can bring their voice up and down without you know going too heavy on things and the right song to to sing really and this is a voice song isn't it production wise it, it's just listen to this guy I mean, like the Shirley Bassey stuff last week but this one has got much much more nuance yes um, yeah. because of the particular song choice there's no, there's no feeling of the voice competing. It is drifting along with it, with the, with the music, on top of it, which is great. Um, I'd say those big kind of choirs get a bit washy for me and a bit, yeah, a, a that's bit my only, only note. Yeah, really. Um, but they've kept it, they kept that down more than they often are. So yeah, but it's all very nicely captured. I've given it sixty six for production. Mm-hmm. Um. And then on to the lyrics, which um, I don't think we've had any metaphorical river songs yet, have we? We've we've, we've had the, uh, a river mentioned in a um, running bear, but that wasn't metaphorical. That was just part of the the story of the river that uh, divided yeah. them. But um, but the idea of the river as a friend, because because um, when it says my huckleberry friend, river and me, that's the river, isn't it? It's literally um, it's about traveling with and down the river the river being your yeah. companion the river of life kind of thing you know. yeah and huckle that that word huckleberry yes is an interesting one which is obviously a reference to the notion of like well it, it comes from huckleberry finn yeah you know tom sawyer huckleberry finn the big river the friend who is like the person you need at a certain time yeah the one who's there to sort of take you on adventures or, or be with you when you need them type thing i used to love the huckleberry finn story yeah um i had must see where I've got the copy of my book from when I was little. But yeah, it's, it's a nice word as well, which I think also is feels like a very American word. Oh, yeah. Which I think gives the song, even though this is Danny Williams, a South African recording it in the UK. Yeah. Uh, keeps it in that American feel, which I like. Yeah. It's, this doesn't feel like, the, this isn't the Thames. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. It's definitely the Mississippi, isn't it? Or something like that, yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, it's it, some southern, big southern river. And I've seen some of those big southern rivers in America, and they are pretty impressive. Pretty big. I mean, I like how they've used Huckleberry as kind of like, yeah, meaning, they've turned it into a, a word to mean a friend that you kind of travel and sit with throughout life. Mm-hmm. You know, not just that, that kind of friend who is with you or will be there to sit with. Yeah, I, I read it as being the... Um, yeah, the river being... It's a metaphor for the river. No, that is a life. river is life. You're on the river of life. It's with you as well. You're not just on it. You're together. Seeing what, where you're going. So, yeah, I like it. 
Nice. 60 for lyrics, which gives it 65 overall. Well, let me give you a little bit from Disc Magazine, because I haven't done that this episode yet. Okay. Uh, Disc, uh, November 18th, 1961. And the headline is, Danny Williams didn't like Moon River at first. And it opens with, Danny Williams, who gets his first chart success with Moon River, nearly didn't make the record because he felt the song just didn't stand a chance of being a hit. Of course, I'm delighted I was wrong, said Danny, when we met this week to talk about the big break this 18-year-old South African has been waiting for. And he says, I heard Moon River with my manager, Tony Lewis, and although we liked it, we weren't too keen. Then we went to see the movie in which it is featured, Breakfast at Tiffany's, and I knew it was for me, but I never expected it to click in this way. Um, So, yeah, so at one point he was like, what, that song? You know. Couldn't imagine his voice. He's got quite, like... And almost because it's Audrey Hepburn, like you say, wasn't it? And he's got in the film, yeah, yeah. He's got a kind of an, a bit of an androgynous voice, if if you if for want of a well, that's the right kind of term. You know, you could be mistaken for thinking it's a female singer in places, but it's just it's just a strong voice. No it, matter. Yeah, he doesn't have a, a, a really got, low, full like. Yeah, or it certainly doesn't stretch it to that. I think he does have that voice. He's and but in this some song, of his other bits and bobs I've heard, but yeah, he's he's used very very charmingly in this song in a very very yeah. interesting way i think you're right so i think uh, but what he does say in this article he says i think my kind of song may be on the way back because the kids who buy the records are growing up and, and like a decent ballad it's like uh sorry danny uh was yeah. this you've got a couple more years and then no, okay. the rock and roll's gonna do for you like it's of done course. for everyone else yes the bit or the british rocks uh, invasion well it was nice whilst it lasted yeah so, very nice while it lasted. I think, like this episode it's come to an end, which is um, and and nineteen sixty one has yeah. come to an end, and so um, we have one song this week that didn't make it into the top twenty, which if you could can't guess already, was Frankie Vaughan and his <laughs> Tower of Strength, which has actually come in at number forty one, which is last so far of all the songs we've rated, <laughs> um, and then the rest go in as follows. Um, I'll do the top twenty because then we'll go. I'll cover them all. Mm-hmm. At number 20, Elvis Presley, Little Sister. At number 19, Helen Shapiro, You Don't Know. At number 18, Three Steps to Heaven, Eddie Cochran. At number 17, Floyd Kramer, On the Rebound. At number 16, Blue Moon, The Marcells. At number 15, Starry-Eyed, Michael Holiday. At number 14, Helen Shapiro, Walking Back to Happiness. At number 13, Johnny Tillotson, Poetry in Motion. At number 12, Elvis Presley, Are You Lonesome Tonight? At number 11, The Highwayman, Michael... At number 10, It's Now or Never, Elvis Presley. At number 9, Surrender, Elvis Presley. At number 8, Walk Right Back, The Everly Brothers. At number 7, Marie's The Name, His Latest Flame, Elvis Presley. At number 6, The Everly Brothers, Kathy's Clown. At number 5, Only the Lonely, Roy Orbison. At number 4, Shaking All Over, Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. At number 3, Danny Williams, Moon River. At number 2, Apache, The Shadows. At number 1, Runaway, Dolph Shannon. Just about made it through that chart. You started to break up a little at the end there, I think. I know, I'm just emotional with the, with the <laughs> sheer weight of 1961. Yes, it's indeed, yes. Yeah, so we go. Moon River got to number three, Paul, so you should be quite happy with that. I am happy with that. Yeah, it probably stayed somewhere in the top 20. I just, I was watching a film the other day. I'll just mention this. What was it? The Martian, which was one of the ones that we can just watch every few months because it's just a good film. Um, and okay. there was a David Bowie song in there, and I thought, oh my, I'm probably going to be doing that in this <laughs> at some point. I think. Right. I think that's 
Or will I? Or will I actually? Well, I'm not giving anything away if you don't. But know. it's like it's like thinking that there's so far, there's so far to go. <laughs> just like the trip to Mars and back. There's just such a long way to go yet, isn't there? The sixties, the the change that we should probably be going to hear from what we're listening to now is going to be mad. Even though, but will something like Moon River stay there as a like because of its timeless quality? What in the chart? Oh, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's that's gonna the be, thing. It's going to be hard because, apart from anything, I also have that problem of having set down milestones so early oh, on. Oh yeah, I, I mean your numbers are stupid as we've ascertained, but, and that's yeah, but it's, uh, it's, never, never going to change. It's difficult. It's difficult. It's it's like um, you know the whole landscape of music is going to change, a bit like with the Beatles stuff. Anyway, anyway, let's just say before we go that next week what we're going to do is we're going to have an episode as normal but what we're going to we're going to look back at the first couple of years in the 60s of albums aren't we Paul just for a bit of a number one albums yeah number one albums we're going to look at the number one albums we're going to we'll try and do that every couple of years worth of episodes I think just to see yeah. if there's been enough because there's a very different it's a very different story isn't it and that's I was I think I mentioned it a couple of episodes ago that I'm interested in it so we're going yeah. to have a, a shorter more loose, if you can get more loose, <laughs> episode about <laughs> albums, the albums to date, and then we will crack on with 1962, the episode after. So we will see you then, and bye-bye. A very croaky goodbye from us. We'll be better soon. Bye. Bye. bye.